Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, may they be pleasing in your sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Bronco game got moved to 630. So that means I can talk a lot longer this morning. So aren't you thrilled? Aren't you feeling good? And if it goes like that Nebraska game, you'll probably not mind if I preach through the entire thing, right? So, um, but uh, no, I won't, I won't bore you too much just for a half hour or so maybe. Well, it had been an adventure for her to say the least. She had been on a whirlwind of activity, of thoughts, of experiences, and she was in the midst of trying to get her bearings. It had been a few months since that incident that she experienced where there was all of a sudden this bright light and a person stood before her. It was not fair to call them a person. It was, a, it was an angel. And the angel had announced to her that she would carry into the world the Messiah. And of course she asked, how is that possible? And the angel had told her, all things are possible with God. The Most High will overshadow you and you will conceive and give birth to a child. And she said those words that Christians for 2,000 years have struggled to say. May it be so. May it be as you have said. And this young teenage girl, perhaps as young as 13, was able to say to the, to the angel, was able to say to the God of the universe, may it be as you have said, I am your servant. <laughs> of course, she'd never experienced pregnancy before. She had never experienced the experience. And if you think that God doesn't have a sense of humor, just go talk to a gal who's experiencing carrying a child, right? He could have thought of any way to accomplish that. He could have come up with any means to bring a child into this world. And he chose moms sacrificing themselves for nine months and then additionally another 18 years. And more. He could have picked any way. There could have been like some, you know, thing that just popped up on your finger and then it popped off the next day and it was a full grown child and it had a job. <laughs> could speak. But no, this was his way. This way, you were a single cell, you were a speck in the universe. You are a single cell. And God of the universe says, I'm going to enter into this world as a speck. This universe, which is a speck to me as because I'm God, I'm going to be a speck within the speck. And God enters into this world. He enters into, into this young woman. The fate of humanity was once a single cell. In the womb of a teenage girl. It's amazing. It's a crazy idea. And this is this girl that we see. Mary the mother of Jesus. And she is. She's excited. She's nervous. 
she's starting to see some changes, and she lives in a small town. You ever lived in a small town? You ever been a teenage girl expecting out of wedlock in a small town? It doesn't go over very well. We're becoming a little more uh, at ease with these things. It's not as scandalous as it used to be, but this is 2,000 years ago. This is 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel. This is a young girl who is also pledged, engaged to be married. And tongues wag in small towns, even in ancient Israel. So what does she do? She moves to the hills. As she starts to show, she moves away. She moves off to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And there she stays. And she enters this home. And she is greeted by Elizabeth, who is also expecting, but she's a lot older. In fact, she's never had children before. She's on the opposite end of the spectrum. And God has blessed her miraculously with a child who will be John. You'll know him as John the Baptist. And Mary visits Elizabeth, and she enters into this home, and then she sings this song. Now, I don't know if she'd been making this up for a while. I don't know if this was like an impromptu thing. You know how there's... This impromptu, maybe you don't know about this, but there's like rap nowadays. And rappers just on the spot make up a rhyme. Maybe it was like that. Maybe she just came up with this song. What we do know is that since it's in your Bible, the Holy Spirit said, that's good Bible, print it. And so we know that the Holy Spirit, at some level, inspired this song. When I was a songwriting major in college, we would blame God for all sorts of songs. You know, we would, we'd have songwriting lab and we'd get together uh, on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons and we'd come together and we'd have to play the song that we'd been working on. And a good way to make it above contestation is to say, yeah, the, God gave me this song. The Lord gave me this song. Well, then all of a sudden you can't say, well, that's a terrible song because you're basically saying God's a horrible songwriter. Unfortunately... The professor had been around a bunch of knuckleheads like us. And he said, if any of y'all blame God for really bad songs anymore, I'm kicking you out the group, I'm kicking you out the, the songwriting lab. So then we had to say, yeah, I wrote this. I think it's really bad, but it's all I got. Mary, though, she could say God gave me this song because he did somehow. Somehow God gave her this song. Maybe it's on, on the tip of her tongue in that very moment. Sometimes I experience that when I'm preaching. Sometimes. There's occasional moments where it's like, wow, that seemed to go really well. That part, that saying, what I just said, I didn't think of that beforehand. And blah, 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 blah. Now, it's not Bible. It's not printed. So it's not at the same level as what Mary did. We're going to take a moment looking at this song. We're going to spend the next four weeks looking at what I like to think of as the lyrics of Christmas. Christmas songs, the first Christmas songs that were ever written and are recorded for us in the book of Luke. And today we're going to look at the song of Mary. And I hope to, that you will walk away with a sense of God and the sense of the meaning of Christmas 
And for some of you, perhaps like you've never thought of Christmas before. Uh, We're going to pick this up in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. Hopefully you brought your Bible, your iPad, your iPhone, your Android, whatever you use to get the Bible into your eyeballs, you brought that. Because one of the values, as we heard St. Augustine say, is the Bible's for you. It was written for you. God went through a lot of hassles. People died to get the Bible into English so you could read it. And you need to bring your scriptures with you. We don't put them on the screen anymore. It's against my religion. And so we're asking you to bring your Bible so you can mark them up, you can circle them, you can highlight them because when that 3 a.m. crisis happens, you can go, I think Pastor Steve said something about that. And hopefully you got your scriptures with you. Now, Luke chapter 1. Did I give you enough time to find it? Luke chapter 1, verse 46 says this. And Mary said. She didn't sing it, by the way, it seems. But we call it a song. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This ends the reading of God's word. Now, it's interesting when you read this, what I want to do is kind of jump around this thing and help you see some things in her prayer that tell us a lot about what we sing about at Christmas. The next few weeks unless your name is Sherilyn Rockwell, you're going to sing songs about Christmas. She's been singing since August. June? June? August, all right. You will be singing songs about Christmas. For some reason, I'm not quite in the Christmas mood yet. Maybe it's because we have been living in sunny San Diego. It's been 75 and mild outside. And, And I'm not quite there yet. It's been a little bit of a just it's been a little bit jarring for me when i jump in the car and on the christian radio station it's playing christmas carols because i guess i've gotten used to being in san diego here these last few months but we're in the christmas season we're in the advent season and this is a song that mary sang the first christmas carol And songwriters for generations have picked up some of these themes and put them into carols that you and I sing. And so one of the things I want you to do and want you to think about for the next few weeks is what are we singing about when we sing about Christmas? Did you see where Mary begins? First, she says some stuff about what God did for her. But then in verse 49 and 50, she gives us some of God's attributes. She says some stuff about God that is at the heart of Christmas, at the heart of who he is, at the heart of what he's doing. First, she says he's the mighty one. He's the mighty one. And he has done great things for me. You know, one of the things that's interesting, if you talk to people today and you ask them about God and you ask them about their, his attributes, one of the things that some will say that he's able to do is he's omnipotent. Means he can do anything. He's all powerful. 
But then when something goes haywire in their life, and I, by the way, I'm at the front of this line. When something goes crazy in their life, when they start to have, oh, I don't know, something breaks down with their car, something goes wrong with their house, one of their kids goes off the rails. Maybe the doctor calls and says, hey, this bad thing's happening to you. When those start happening, then you all of a sudden don't think God's all that powerful. Or maybe you do. It's those times of crisis where what we really believe and versus what we say we believe becomes crystal clear. If you believe that God is all-powerful, that he's got this, that he's in large and in charge, then you don't freak out for as long. Because you'll still freak out. At least I do. That's been my experience. I still freak out. What am I going to do? I need new tires and there's no matter, you know. What am I going to do? The house is burning down. Well, not quite, but it will if we don't get this fixed. What am I going to do? She's driving me insane because she's dating that kid. Right? I mean, all these things, there's many crises. But if we have this in the back pocket, if we keep this in mind, that God is the mighty one. He's the mighty one. He's able to do the impossible. You see, it's become trendy in our day and age to... To not believe in the mighty one. Many people believe in a God. They just have a hard time believing that this God entered into a man and lived as a 100% God and a 100% man in some carpenter in ancient Israel. They have a hard time believing that. They believe in God. The kind of God they believe in, though, is a limited God. They believe in a limited God because a limited God can't tell you what to do. A limited God can't help you. But a limited God can be controlled. A limited God can be told, hey, hands off. But a mighty one? The mighty one? The mighty one messes with you. The mighty one's powerful. The mighty one can do whatever he wants. The mighty one is who Mary understands God to be. Second attribute we see that we, she names here, holy is his name. God is holy. Not only is he mighty, able to do whatever he wants to do, he is holy. Now, the interesting thing with holiness is we don't get what this means anymore because pastors wear jeans to church, right? Because it used to be church was a holy place. That's where God lived. God's house, holiness. My house, not so much. I can do whatever I want there. Church, no running in the church. Got to wear your best. Look nice, smell nice. Play like you got together. Church, holy. And we've kind of gotten away from that. We have very few sacred spaces in our society anymore. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing or another thing. I tend to like that I get to wear jeans to church. Some of you like that too. I tend to like that we're not all uptight about this building, how it functions, how we use it. Holiness, though, is an attribute of God. It's not an attribute of this place. And holiness, what does this mean? It means that God is opposed to sin. And he'll never get used to it. God hates sin. And he'll never get used to it. We have a problem. We live on planet Earth. We live in Ray, Colorado. We live in Yuma County. We live in the state of Colorado. And we have a problem. We get used to sin. We just live amongst it. We live in it. We do it. We're used to sin. 
It's just, ah, it's just the way it is. I'm a, I'm a human being. Couldn't help myself. Ah, they're only human. We write songs about this. We celebrate it. And eventually we call wrong right and right wrong because we get so used to sin. But God is holy. Mary says he's holy. He will never, ever get used to sin. Are you comfortable singing Christmas carols that are saying Jesus is coming into the world because of your flaws? Jesus had to become a single cell, a speck in the speck of the universe because of your sin. That's what we sing at Christmas time. And our world has a really big problem with this. Our world, our culture, our society is going, uh-uh, not me. I don't have a problem. Sin, you're so intolerant. You're so mean to call people that. How insensitive are you? They just are challenged in some way. The scriptures right off the bat say God's holy. That's why he's here. Now, if God was all powerful and all holy, but the next attribute wasn't part of him, it would go really bad for us. The next attribute is super, super important. These three attributes are at the core, at the heart of Christmas. Do you see the next attribute? His mercy extends to those who fear him. Mercy. This is the heart of the good news. That God God is merciful. Think of this. Donald Trump, I think he made a living being a pirate. Where he'd take over struggling companies. And when you take over a struggling company, do you know what you do when you take over a struggling company? You walk in and go, these people are idiots and incompetent. They don't know how to run this place. You're all fired. In fact, they made a TV show around this with a guy, didn't they? That was his punchline. You're fired. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes as president. Because he's going to want to go in and fire a lot of people. And they'll be like, dude, I was elected. I'm sorry. You can't get rid of me. If you bought a company, a leveraged corporate takeover, you would go into that company and you would have the power, you'd have the right to fire everybody. You'd have a right to roll all the heads and clear the benches and get all new competent people in. And if you, you would also have a reason because all these people are flawed. All these people are incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. You'd have a moral obligation. It would be the practical thing to do. But if you were merciful, if you were merciful, you'd act like God. Now, I'm not saying God's principles need to be how you run your business. There are some incompetent people out there. But if God was like us, if God was like us, heads would have rolled. We'd have been replaced. He would have been completely in his rights to get rid of us because we're flawed. Look at the world. Look at the problems. Look at Syria. The last hospital in Syria was destroyed this past week. The last hospital, not in Syria, but in Aleppo, Syria, was destroyed. We've messed this place up. We hate one another. We destroy one another based on gender, based on race, based on nationality. 
My dad's traveled in Europe extensively. When you go there, they liked him in Belgium because his last name was Weinkoop. And they could pinpoint, based on your last name and accent, where exactly you lived, where you grew up. They all look the same. They're all a bunch of white people. But they could tell where you were from and whether they liked you or not. Kind of like we do with Ray and Yuma, right? We've messed this place up. Our flaws have ruined this place. But God is merciful. And Christmas is singing about him restoring us. Redeeming us, fixing us, fixing this world. Those are the attributes that we see that Mary gets about God, the father, as she sings her song. And she goes on, she talks a little bit about his purpose, what he's trying to achieve and what he's doing. It says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed, what tense is that in? Has performed past tense. He's done stuff in the past. Mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud to their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. We have a God. Mary has a God who has and this is super irritating about Christianity. This is what's super irritating about Christianity versus other religions, versus other philosophies, versus other ways of living. The Christian religion says God's done stuff in history. God's done stuff in history. He's interacted in history. He's brought down rulers. He's lifted up rulers. He's brought down proud people. He's lifted up humble people. He's done stuff in history outside of you and I. And this is one of the big irritants about Christianity because it's not just a personal, quiet, inside of me religion. It's not about God just fixing you, changing you. It's not about God just doing stuff for you. It's bigger than that. You're just a part of it. You're just a little piece of it, but you're not the show. You're like an extra. We're all like extras. It's God who is the show. The interesting thing is every time in the New Testament, nearly every time in the New Testament, when Paul talks about what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, what do you think he'd say? Most of us would think, oh, he forgave me of my sins. Jesus' death on the cross forgave me of my sins. That's what we would expect Paul to say. Why? Because that's what pastors say. That's what Sunday school teachers say. That's what curriculum says. That's what everybody says. Jesus died on the cross. Why? To forgive me of my sins. Me about my sins. But do you know what the Apostle Paul says every single time he talks about the death and resurrection of Christ? He says he defeated the powers, the authorities... And he cast them down. And you're like, huh? He defeated the principalities, the powers, and the authorities? Almost every time Paul talks about the death 
and resurrection of Christ. He is proclaiming that something that has happened in this world that's supernatural and tragic has been fixed. It's been reversed. And his death can never be reversed. His resurrection can never be reversed. You already killed him. What are you going to do? Kill him again. He'll probably do it again. And every time when the principalities and powers of this present darkness think about that, they go, we're, we're toast. We've lost. We're defeated. And then Paul picks up this theme and he says, you were slaves to them. But no longer. They have no power over you. You can act according to the deeds of the flesh. Of the old man, says Paul. But you don't have to. Put on the new flesh. Put on the new creature. Know who you are in Christ. They've been defeated. You see, what Jesus does is far bigger than just changes us on the inside and makes us feel better about ourselves. What he's done is he's fixed this world. He's fixing this. He's putting it to right. Uh, now, there's one last thing we see here, and that's about his adequacy to do this, his ability to fix things. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Well, let's move back to verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. This speaks to him and his adequacy. Now it's interesting. Mary is anticipating the Beatitudes here. <laughs> Anybody remember what some of the Beatitudes are? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourning. The grieving. Blessed are the hungry. This is a tragic list. Nobody wants on this list. And Mary is picking up these ideas. Even prior to Jesus birth. Even prior to Jesus, the word of life, speaking those words of life. And she picks up on these themes. And she realizes that those who are rich and wealthy and have their act together and are doing a good job and look like they're all put together on planet Earth, they're going to be set away empty. But the poor, like literal poor, like poor in spirit, as Eugene Peterson puts it, the people at the end of their rope, <laughs> the people who have it, don't have it all together, they're the ones that he will fill. You see, you're going to be marketed a bunch of things at Christmas time, and you're even going to be marketed some books at Christian publishers and Christian bookstores, and they have an anti-Christmas message. <laughs> and don't go buy these books. Don't go buy the anti-Christmas books for Christmas gifts. Do you know what the message of the anti-Christmas books are? The message of the anti-Christmas books, which are put out as self-help religious books, their message is this. You have what it takes. You are competent. If you just believe, you can do. This anti-Christmas message is all over the place. It'll be on TV shows left and right during Christmas holiday season. It is all over and all around us. Why? Because we believe that somewhere in the Bible it says, God helps those who help themselves. We think that somewhere. 
I think it's in second thoughts or first opinions, but it's somewhere in there. Isn't it? And then we come to a verse like this. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. If you were here last week, you know how I feel about us. We're all rich. We're all rich. We are the wealthy of this world. (laughs) The scary thing about a verse like that is this room is full of people who are in grave danger. This room is full of people who are pretty well educated, who are fairly successful, who have made something of themselves, who think, you know what? I've got it together. I'm doing pretty good. If I try harder, I'll probably even do better. Isn't that what Disney movies that I show my kid tell them? And this comes along and says, you ain't nothing. If you think you've got it together, that's what you get. But if you think you lack, if you think you need more, if you think you're poor, if you think you're hungry, then God is just more than happy to meet you there. There's a letter. It was written by the wife of the president of Harvard about 100 years ago. And he and his wife weren't Christians. They weren't believers. And she wrote this letter to a friend of hers who was Episcopalian. And I, I, I got to find it because this is a very interesting quote. She says this. Nope, that's not what she says. This is what she says. She wrote to her Episcopalian friend. She said, my dear, every Sunday, can you hear the condescending elitist tone in that? My dear, every Sunday, do you get down on your knees with your children and confess that you're miserable sinners? Neither my children nor I will ever do such a thing. Yikes. Neither my children nor I will ever do such a thing. You see, God can't work with a person like that. There's nothing that God can do for them or offer them. They will be sent away empty. They are depending on their own righteousness. They are depending on themselves to get themselves good with God. And if you are in that place, you are in grave danger. Some of you are in that place. You've been following Jesus for so long you can't remember. And if you look down your nose at anyone, you are in grave danger. Because you are trusting in something in you that causes you to look down your nose at somebody else. Thank God I'm not like that poor soul. Thank God I don't have their issues. Thank God I have my act together. If you think about it, this is why the church has always historically identified with the poor in this world. This is why the church has always rallied around the poor, why people in the church have taken vows of poverty, why the people in the church have moved like the Orr brothers, and they've gone to places like New Jersey, from Ray, Colorado, and they live and work amongst the African-American disadvantaged kids in that community. Why? Because the gospel says that there's something in this for poor people. But the rich will be turned away empty. This is why Jesus came. He forsook all of the splendor and the beauty and the awesomeness of being God in heaven. Could you imagine? 
And he said, I will become a speck within the speck for their sakes. This is the message of Christmas. I mean, do you, when you sing, sing about his adequacy? Do you, when you sing, sing about his unchanging historical purposes? What he's doing in this world, what he's doing with his mighty arm, what he's acting in this world, in your life, in not just your life, in human history now? Do you, when you sing, think about his attributes and his glory and his holiness and his majesty? Do you center everything around him as you sing? In the next few weeks, we're going to sing Christmas carols here. Not only that, you're going to play them at home. They're going to be on your car. You're going to go to Walmart. My goodness, they're actually going to play them there. You're going to go to a mall. They're going to be on there. This is the one time our culture is just inundated with this message. But are we listening? Are we singing? Do we get it? God help us that we would. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these people. We thank you that you sent Jesus Christ, that you are mighty and can do something about our problems, that you are holy and you've got to do something about the flaws of this world, but you're merciful. And that means that you want to do something about it and that you want to redeem us and restore us. And Father, I pray that this song of Mary's would shape our Christmas for us this year that we'd see you as the mighty, holy, merciful God. But we would also recognize that you work in history and you're working in our world even today. And that you are adequate to do it. You're all we need. You're what this world needs. That you will put the right to, you will put the wrongs to right one day. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you experience Christmas and singing this year like never before. Because you know Christ. You know God the Father. You know the Holy Spirit. Amen.